0: Welcome to Logan Bartlett Show. On this episode, what you're gonna hear is a conversation I have with Louise Von on Now, Louise is the co-founder and CEO of Duolingo, a $9 billion business in the public markets that builds an application for language learning. Louise and I talked about a number of different things, including how they built a culture of iterating on product and A B testing different features, as well as how they got their mascot duo to become a meme and go viral on different social channels. A really fun conversation with someone someone that is very very bright including having a phd in computer science but applied that to building both duolingo as well as the prior company that he sold to google called recaptcha which you might be familiar with you'll hear that conversation with louise here now i want to talk about like building a culture of iteration ab testing continuous improvement all that stuff i kind of have an opinion that in some companies or some markets uh, there's an opportunity that opens up and it's just a debate of which company is going to run through uh, and build the equity value that comes out of that. I'm not sure if you agree with this, but my sense is that you guys were in the right place, right time with regard to mobile and you were right about your thesis around language, but it was actually the culture of incremental improvement and just continuously getting better with the product that has led to the distance how big of a business you've been able to build? I don't know if you agree with that that thesis, that it wasn't necessarily inevitable that there would be an $8 billion public company built around language learning.
1: Yeah, I, I don't think it's necessarily the case that uh, that an $8 billion company needed to exist in language learning. Um, it's true that we were at the, at the right time with mobile for sure, and we capitalized for that. Uh, capitalized on that. But I really think we were able to create a product that um, got people very engaged and, and such a thing didn't exist for language learning. And, and I'll tell you that the biggest stat that, that supports that, 80% of our users in the United States were not learning a language before Duolingo. Uh, just, we have basically massively grown the market in certain countries, not in every country, but in certain countries, we've massively grown the market. And it's, I think it's just because... I mean the main reason for it is because for the first five years of the company the only thing we did was work on making duolingo have higher user retention and that's not paid user retention that's just free we 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 were not making any money for the first five years of duolingo we make zero dollars like we were not making any money and because we were not making any money we also weren't spending any money on marketing so there was kind of nothing to do i mean we We weren't spending any money on marketing, so there was not much to do there. We weren't making any money, so there was not much to do in terms of like, you know, working on the monetization of dueling or or anything like that. The only things we could work on are teach better and keep people engaged. And so that's all we did. So five years, we simply made the product stickier and stickier, and it, it really made a big difference.
0: How do you build a culture of like A-B testing in iteration and people willing to take chances uh, knowing that you might make
1: mistakes and that you can undo them if so? It's not like when we started, we thought we're going to build a company around A-B testing. This is not, you know, the way it started is we started, we started with the product and we we would make some changes to it. And um, we we would make like whatever the changes were, like, okay, we're going to add a, a screen at the end of a lesson that has fireworks or whatever, random changes. And two things were happening. Number one, we would add the screen and we couldn't tell if the thing was better or not because, you know, we would, we would see that the metrics were like either kind of flat, but if they were flat, we always found an explanation like, Oh, it's because it's because this week is Thanksgiving or whatever it is. And that's why normally we would have gone down, but because We, uh, you know, added the screen, we didn't go down or something like that. Like whatever. just couldn't tell if things were actually helping or not. And in addition to that, we, we couldn't tell which idea was good and which wasn't because we're like, well, if we couldn't tell if that was a good thing or not, we, you know, I don't know. Was that a good idea or not? And so at some point, um, Peter to us, you know what, we should actually run one AD test and figure out if, if that thing was actually good. Um, and we run, I remember we ran a test, I don't remember exactly what the feature was, but I remember there were like four options and we, each one of us bet on which the option was going to be best. And we thought of ourselves as very good product people. And it turned out none of us were right. And then after that, we thought, oh crap, I guess we really had no idea. You know, we ran the AB test. The thing that won was not the thing any of us thought was, was going to win. And then for the next few weeks, we ran a number of other AB tests and we always would say, try to predict what was going to win. And we realized we were actually quite crappy at predicting what was going to win. And that's when we really convinced ourselves, well, look, we don't really know what is better for a product. I mean, we have some idea, but it's not, you know, it's better than 50%, but you not much better than 50%. So, you know, At that point, we kind of started this rule that every change of Duolingo is an A-B test. And so we built a pretty sophisticated infrastructure, which was way ahead of its time. By now, I think, you know, this was more than 10 years ago, it was way ahead of its time in terms of how good it was. Also for the size of company, maybe Google at the time had such a good infrastructure, much probably better than ours, but for a small company, you know, it was kind of unheard of to have this infrastructure, but we built an infrastructure that really allowed us to make everything an A-B test. And I think that that really... Made a made a big difference. The other thing that I think in terms of a culture, you know, we make we make it clear that it's totally okay to run A B tests that don't succeed. And you know, we have the stats and you know, I don't know off the top of my head anymore, but I mean we run something around five hundred A B tests per quarter. And look, something like sixty percent of them succeed and the other forty percent fail. That means hundreds of A B tests that we run per quarter fail. And it's okay everybody's everybody's done that and i also like to tell the story that some of the best features of duolingo uh, have been things that i've been vehemently against at first
0: most notably the the streak i think was one that you said you originally pushed back on is that right
1: no the streak actually was not the streak i was you know we don't really remember anymore but i'm pretty who, who sure came up that with I'm, that originally? I'm pretty yeah. sure i was the one who brought it up But there are, there's more than one person that will tell you that they're pretty sure they're the one who brought it up. So success (laughs) has many
0: fathers, right? Or mothers.
1: Like I'm not, the thing is I'm not even lying to myself. Like I actually have a memory. Remember that I remember that, but there are other people who claim that too. So, and I believe them. So we don't really know who actually, so I was not against the streak, but I was against our leaderboards. We have this league system in our leaderboards. I was against that because we had tried leaderboards many times before and they had failed. And you know, this was like the fourth attempt. And somebody came and they said, We're going to do leaderboards. I'm like, No, don't do that. You've, we've tried it. We've tried it many times. It's just not going to work. But they were very um, committed to it. And it turns out it was one of the best things we've ever done the, the, the league system at the Lingo.
0: How do you think about like, listening to people's feedback? I've heard you use the example before of like, People thought it was too bright. The green was too bright and they all complained about it. And then you said you changed it and they said, okay, wait, never mind. It's not too bright, even though nothing actually happened. How do you think about like trusting the data versus listening to the users and the balance between that and product design? A couple of things to say.
1: The, The good news about Dueling or what makes it a little easier about Dueling was that we can be the users too. There are some products that you design where you're not the user. I mean... For example, for a while, I was, you know, we, we, we have a Duolingo ABC, which is an app to teach you how to read. I'm not the user. I know how to read. Like I just, I'm just not the user. I'm also not like four years old. Um, but for Duolingo, I am actually the user. And so for that, we, we do take advantage of that. I mean, everybody that is in the product team at Duolingo, we ask them, you kind of have to really be a big user of it, and that makes a big difference. So that's one thing. You listen to yourself. Um, when we talk to users, we have to take everything they say with a grain of salt. Um, we just, we have found uh, that doesn't mean don't listen to them, but we have found definitely do not build features based on the things that you ask. asked. Uh, I mean, uh, usually there's a deeper reason for why they're asking for a feature. So what, what we're interested in is not, what's your idea for a feature? We're not very interested in that. We're interested in what, you know, where you're having, where you're confused or where, you know, where you're having trouble or something like that. And, and if you have an idea, we want you to tell us why you haven't an idea. What, why is that you're suggesting that? Because that usually gets at what the actual user problem is. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, we, we do, we do use the research. We try to all of that. But ultimately, I think what works best for us is we have a group of people at Duolingo, which fortunately has grown over time. But it's a group of people that started with one or two people who just, because we ran so many A-B tests, we had a really good idea of what worked and what didn't. And by now we have a group of, I don't know how many colleagues, 15 to 20 people in the company who are just excellently um, attuned to what works and what doesn't with an A-B test. It just, it, they're very good. Um, and, and I think that's what what's worked the most. We just, when you have under your belt, when you have hundreds of reps, where you're like, I tried that, it, and you know, did it work? No, it didn't work. I tried that and you know, did it work? Didn't work. And you do that hundreds of times. You just get a really, really good nose. And I think that's the thing that has worked the most for us, having having this group of people.
0: I've heard you say that when you find a metric that you want to optimize, you'll actually form a team that focuses on the optimization. How does that, is that a cross-functional team across product engineering, marketing? Like what, what does a team look like? Maybe give an example of a metric that you you've thought about, like how it actually comes to be.
1: Yeah, I'll give you some examples. I mean, one, for example, is um, a metric that we call time spent learning, TSL. A while ago, a few years ago, we decided you know, we should have people spend more time in the app because the more time they spend, the, the more they learn. It's very simple. Uh, so let's form a team around it. And what a team usually is, is we have um, usually two team leads, sometimes three. Uh, usually there's an engineering team lead and then there's a product manager team lead. Sometimes there's a design team lead and sometimes there's a, um, a learning scientist team lead. Um, but usually it's two. And then we put in that team, we put designers, we put engineers, we may put one or two more program, ma- product managers, depending on how many, how big the team is. Um, and, and then they work and they can touch any place in the app. After a few months, they, um, they figure out what moves that metric. In the case of time spent learning, what moves the metric is the leaderboard. And so the time spent learning team mainly touches the leaderboards. That's what they do.
0: And as you think about the, uh, the unintended consequences of setting these metrics, I think I've heard the example of the streak Uh, people were just signing into the app just to keep their streak going. Uh, Maybe speak a little bit about that. Or the Groupon example of when a channel gets too saturated and the balance of local optimization versus long-term value creation.
1: Yeah, this is the tyranny of metrics. I mean, we have to watch out for that a lot. Our teams are so good at, at optimizing metrics that sometimes they lose sight of what's actually important. They're just, it's just a machine to optimize a metric. Um, and they're very good at it. And by the way, the people that we hire, you know, are usually these people that have optimized their entire life. I mean, they were probably the best student in their preschool. I uh, just kind of <laughs> optimized their entire, So they're massively good at optimizing and they'll optimize the hell out of something. And so we have to really watch out. And, you know, the way we watch out for that is by, we have this process called product review where, you know, every change of the app to the app gets reviewed by a, a senior group of people who are kind of overseeing the whole thing. So they have to keep in mind, you know, they're the ones who stop spamminess and stuff like that. But, you know, when you just let teams just fully optimize a metric, this leads to spammy behavior. And, you know, I, I just, we have a, a story that we use inside the company a lot, um, which is, comes from one, from the founder of One who told us this story. Um, who said, uh, look, originally with Groupon, we had this rule that we could only send one email per day per user because who wants to receive more than one, you know, kind of marketing email per day from a company. And, uh, at some point, some product manager said, well, can we try sending two? And, you know, the founder said, no, we only send one. And the product manager used this amazing argument, which is, are you against knowledge? We just... Let's just, let's just see. Let's just see. Can we, and of course, that's a very hard argument to argue against. They're, no, of course I'm not against. So it's fine. You try it, but there's no way in hell that we're going to launch two. Like, we're just going to see what it does. So they, they tried it. They saw what it does. It turned out the matches were way too good not to launch it. It would have been irresponsible not to launch it. Like my God, this, preached everything so much. And so, you know, of course they, they, they launched it. Um, and, uh, then, you know, I was like, well, we tried two. what about three? They tried three, three was better. They launched it and they had a B tested their way to a larger number. I don't remember the exact number, but like seven emails per day. And then immediately after that, the whole channel died because everybody started marking their emails as spam. because it's too much. And then they just AB tested their way to killing the channel. And the reason for that is because they didn't have full information about what was going on. All the metrics they could see were good, but they actually couldn't see how many people were marking their emails as spam. And that's always true. You never have full information about what's going on in the users. You just have some metrics. And from what you can see, it's good. But you're not seeing, for example, uh, that maybe you're, you're getting people to spend more time in the app, but you're actually frustrating them. You're not seeing their frustration. You're just seeing the time. And they are like, oh, okay, well, that's good. And so... You know, we we combat that by basically, you know, it is okay. There are so many tests we just don't run. Even if when people say, are you against knowledge? I'm like, yep, I actually am against knowledge. I don't want to know what happens when you send 30 notifications in one minute. I don't want to know. Sorry. And so because because in general, we do things, and that's why it's good that we're users of the app. It's like, would you want to receive seven emails per day? Uh, that are all marketing emails. Would you want to do that? No, I wouldn't. Okay, then don't do that. And that, I think that has really helped us um, do the right thing here and not drive our product to the ground. I think a lot of products, particularly games, drive themselves to the ground when you know, they're just like, well, we're just going to monetize more and monetize more and monetize more. And it works for a while until at some point it's just like, you know, I, by the way, I wouldn't know how it is with Facebook anymore, but at some point, kind of, Facebook, the Facebook app, kind of just had so many ads that I think they kind of ran it to the ground too. Um, I mean, I haven't used them in a long time, but this is, you know, if they started with like one ad per whatever, 10 posts at some point, it was, I don't know how many ads, you know.
0: Do you set constraints on, I mean, push notifications and emails is a very obvious one, but are there constraints about things that you won't change within the app and those are non-starters or is, is push notifications really a, uh, a one of one thing because it can actually be marked as spam?
1: No, no, it's not just. Um, we have a lot of channels in the app that our product managers get very good at. So, for example, when you finish a lesson on Duolingo, there is a sequence of screens that we call session end. So there, there of course, should be one that says you finished and here are your points. But we start adding other ones. For example, you increase your streak. Good. You increase your streak, that's another screen. But we have other ones too that are just like, hey, uh, by the way, do you want to subscribe to uh, Super Duolingo? Or we add another one. I mean, oh, by the way, have you tried our podcast? It's basically an ad. We just have decided to start adding things in there. And it, it works. Every time you add another session and screen, it does what we want it. Hmm. But you can't have 30 session and screens after you finish one lesson, right? So this is just like at some point, if you finish one lesson, you have 30 screens that you have to click through the channel dies. I mean, it just, it just makes the whole thing. So for example, we have limits, you know, we just cannot have more than a certain number of screens at the end of a lesson. Uh, and and then there's a whole pretty sophisticated system that tries to, it's it's kind of like an auction. It's not exactly an auction, but there's, there's a pretty sophisticated system that tries to figure out, okay, if I can only show three, which three should I show? Hmm. Um, that's the type of thing that we've done, And there's a lot of channels like that in the app. And, you know, I'm still going to red dots. Turns out that if you put a red dot somewhere in the screen, people are going to tap on it. Well, after a while, when we, when that was discovered by, uh, enterprising product managers, the app had like 30 red dots all over the place. And then the channel dies. Because if there are 30 red dots, you don't click on any of them. There's just 30 red dots. Um, so that, that's the type of thing that, that, you know, we use the Groupon story a lot for. And then how do those things roll up to a decision?
0: Like, is it does it ultimately land on your desk or someone else's that like, hey, maybe we might be uh, penny wise, pound foolish on, uh, on these types of tests. And, and this is a little hacky or gimmicky to approach it this way.
1: Every Tuesday and Thursday for two hours, uh, we do this thing called product review, which is I am there. There's usually three reviewers. There's me, there is somebody from product management and somebody from design and every change to the app gets 15 minutes locked and we decide whether it's okay or not and after product review uh we spend uh what we call debriefs for that day and we just go through everything that we approve or didn't approve and we make decisions about like hey um this seems like a like a more general thing let's let's add on we, we call we, we internally have been calling them fatwas which had like don't do that anymore. So that's the type of stuff. There's a lot of feedback in in this where we we try to make ourselves a better product team that way. So we spend, yeah, I mean, every Tuesday and Thursday, multiple hours kind of discussing what is okay and what is not okay in terms of um, features to add.
0: If you were uh, an entrepreneur or uh, an executive at a company and were trying to copy or mimic elements of just how iterative of a culture you all have built. I sort of think like consumer apps, maybe gaming is the furthest extreme of just what a knife's edge it's on in which you need to iterate and do as much as you can to keep users. And then enterprise software is probably on the, the far other side. A bit iterated but if you're trying, once three years ago. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> if you were trying to inject some more of this DNA uh, into a company, is there any tactics or anything that, uh, outside of what we've spoken about here or philosophies that you would espouse to a founder that's thinking about this?
1: You know, one thing you did say, right, is I don't believe that this iterative approach is what's best for every single product. It happens that with Duolingo, a lot of things came together that made it so that it works really well. So for example, we don't have to pay licensing fees for stuff. We don't license music that doesn't allow us to play this song in that country or whatever. We don't have to worry about that. So we don't have to worry. Of, we don't have to worry about that type of stuff. Um, we don't, we don't have, we also don't run something where it's like life or death, where something changes. Somebody's going to, you know, they're going to lose their job or whatever. We can easily just change the app at any point in time. Um, so there's just a lot of things. That, that came together so that it makes it so that we really can just continually improve the product. And the other thing is that we can deliver the product. You know, we can change the app often. I mean, we, we change the app once a week. Uh, there's a new version of the app once a week, so we can change the app often. There's a lot of this that, that makes it so that we really can change uh, very fast and, and can iterate. And because we can, then we do it. Um, and and if, what's what, if that's what you want to do, um, I would say the most important things are make it so that uh, there's no shame in failing uh, for the A-B tests. And that, that, that's very important. Make it so that you can um, iterate pretty quickly. So, uh, I mean, that's that, that, those to me are probably the biggest things.
0: Now, shifting gears a little bit to marketing, I'm not sure I would have guessed uh, that a professor at Carnegie Mellon starting a company would be the the one, uh, especially a computer science background, right? It would be the one to build a world class marketing organization and brand. And it's it was not intuitive uh, to to me. Um, can we talk a little bit about how you think about marketing and where that fits into? Duolingo strategy, including maybe brand and paid user acquisition, influencer, organic, all that stuff?
1: Yeah, marketing is, has had a long history at Duolingo. I think, um, you know, the first several years, we had a mar- marketing budget of zero. So can't spend any money. Just can't. Uh, the reason for that was because we were making no money. And I thought it was silly to spend money acquiring users. And by the way, you know, when we were launching, everybody was, that's kind of when performance marketing was getting like a, you know, really growing. we you're like, oh my God, you can just go to Google and pay them five bucks and they give you a user. It's amazing, just do that. Um, I thought it was silly to do that, you know, pay Google five bucks or however many dollars for a user when we were gonna make no money from a user. So that just seemed like throwing money away. So this is why we never got under the performance marketing boat, uh, we just didn't. But what we did, you know, at at first marketing for us meant PR. And it actually, when you were small, first, when you were small and be 10 years ago, PR was actually quite a strong channel. I think it's a much less strong channel now because, you know, it's kind of social media has kind of taken over a lot of, uh, generally news outlets don't have as much traffic as they used to, but that was quite a big channel for us. Um, and so we had a good story for that, and that helped. The other thing that helped us is that we had this green owl that was kind of weird, um, and I think people started taking to it. And so you would see, like, posts on Reddit or posts that would go viral, but it would be, you know, kind of once every few months, a uh, post on Twitter or post on Reddit or one of these would go viral, and it had to do something with the owl or something like that. Um, we became significantly more professional with marketing, uh, when we hired, um, our first CMO who was Cammy Dunaway. Um, Cammy had been the CMO for, um, you know, very fancy company. She was in the heyday of Yahoo. She was the CMO for Yahoo. Then she was the head of all marketing at Nintendo, which is just crazy, crazy marketing budget. And then she came to us and then, you know, I, (laughs) I said, well, we have no marketing budget. And then she said, let's see, I can't operate that way. You got to give me something. And when she convinced me, and I don't know, I don't remember anymore. The first year, she may have convinced me for something like $30 million of marketing, which to me seemed like, my God, what are you doing? And for her, it must have been the smallest marketing budget she ever had in her entire life. Um, But she was really quite a trooper for it because she was like, okay, well, I'll operate with this. And she started trying a lot of stuff and she hired a really good team. Um, and she started trying a lot of stuff. The majority of it didn't work. We tried stuff like, oh, you know what? We're going to try a radio ad for Latinos in the U.S. who want to learn English. Stuff like that. Kind of, a lot of it wasn't working, but what we did start noticing was that more and more, there were uh, these memes kept popping up relating to our owl, and we weren't doing much for that. We were just... You know, we were trying our own marketing stuff. Whatever it is we were trying. It's not that it was working zero, but it was not home runs. But more and more, we started noticing that, like, oh, my God, there is another, another meme of some person uh, that decided to say that they're scared of the dueling wall because it's going to kidnap their family. And that's when, you know, Cammy and a few people in the team and me and all of us decided, you know what, why don't we lean in on this? That works. Like <laughs> A lot of the stuff we're working on, like we're doing, you know, it's, it, it, it's half ass working. It's not, not working like that. So we started leaning in on it. And we had a group of people that she had hired that were just really creative and really had their finger on the pulse. And then we started, you know, I remember we did one video, which was an April Fool's campaign, where we hired, um, the idea for the April Fool's campaign was that we were going to make a video of one of these really cheap looking lawyers, lawyer videos where they're like, you know, I will get you millions of dollars. Uh, and and we, we, saw, we thought, okay, let's make a video just like that, like a crappy video saying uh, for a lawyer that is looking for people who had been kidnapped by the Duolingo Owl. And you know, there were so many good things, by the way. A really interesting thing is we actually went to try to get one of the companies that make these crappy videos. And we talked to them and we're like, Hey, but we want to like, like crappy, like the videos you make. And they're like, what do you mean crappy? Like we make excellent work. And like, okay. And they kind of didn't, and in the end we didn't hire any of them. We actually hired a very, very fancy company and told them to make it crappy. And they actually understood how to do that. And it was very good as opposed to telling each. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just
0: do your normal thing. Just yeah, yeah. make it bad. No, like that. No, that work wasn't working
1: it. so well. Yeah. We ended up hiring a very fancy company, um, to, to, to make a very crappy looking video. What and, year is this it,
0: that you guys are doing 2019
1: this? Twenty nineteen, maybe that was okay. twenty nineteen. I think so. There was some
0: precedent, went... like I sort of think of um, Dollar Shave Club in their video back in whatever 2013, yeah. 14. That's right. kind of the first right. satirical brandish video out there. So you guys yes, had and that was um, amazing
1: precedent. They did a great job with it. We we did, but we weren't thinking about that. We, were, yeah. I mean, I do know about that video and everything. But we just went. We were just like, look, this is what this is what people are saying, anyways. So we put out that video and it went really quite viral. In uh, the video, by the way, it.
0: to be clear, I mean, it's a very uh, inside joke. Of, okay, so, so the push notifications you have, which I want to talk about in a second, people yep. uh, made memes that they are aggressive uh, in nature or passive aggressive in nature yep. and so that the yep. owl is going to come find you. And then yep. you made a derivative joke about that, which is if you're a lawyer, uh, you're, you're a lawyer looking for the people that the owl actually stole. So it's like a very inside joke, right? We, actually it's not made,
1: multiple, joke. we made multiple derivative jokes for it. I mean, we made another one where we also, um, as a joke product, we said you can, you can actually pay us to send the owl to like stand in front of you until you do your lesson and stuff like that. Um, so yeah, we leaned in on that and that started working really well. And, and, and that's. And by the way, working the-
0: really well as a percentage of how do you even think about the, you guys are so data driven. How'd you think about the ROI or the, could you we just see? We didn't sign-ups?
1: have much, we didn't have much ROI at first. All we could tell was that the videos or the things we were posting were being watched a lot. That's the only thing we could tell. Eventually we ended up getting data because, um, one of the marketing people decided that they were going um, to do a, a, you know, we added a screen at the beginning. When you sign up to do a lingo, how did you hear about us? And we did a lot of um, number punching there. And we figured out there's really a very high correlation. People actually answer pretty truthfully there. It's not a hundred percent, but it's pretty truthfully. And we are able, we use that data and we're now able to really figure out where things come from. And that really works. Um, but at first, all we knew is that a lot of people were watching our stuff. Um, and we weren't paying for it, which which was great. I mean, people were watching our stuff, and we weren't paying for it
0: How did you i mean this is something innately a founder can do, I guess, but you're you're taking a chance by making your brand and the icon of the owl uh, into a meme even more than just the internet's already doing, right, and so how yeah. did you think about like? Clearly, you must have a good sense of humor to find this funny yourself, but there's a risk associated with that, right? You're a learning app. You don't want to be taken as a joke necessarily. There was a risk,
1: and we discussed it. There was a risk, and we discussed it. But in the end, you know, it, it was a risk, but it wasn't, it didn't seem like an existential risk at first. It's like, wow, well, I just published that video. Like, what's the problem? And, you know, it kept working, and we kept doing it more and more. I think that was his, We kind of boiled the frog into it. I mean, yeah. it just didn't seem like that big of a risk at first. Um, and, and I did learn something pretty big here. Um, we hired um, a, a person who uh, was straight out of college. And Cami hired uh, this person, a woman named Zarya, who's amazing, um, who, um, you know, I remember, I remember her hiring meeting. Um, you know, Cammy was trying to explain that we should hire Zarya, and, you know, I saw her resume, I saw the whole thing. And I'm like, why are we hiring this person? I don't understand. And Cammy's like, trust me, look, you have to hire some young people because they understand young people. You don't anymore, please. And, um, just trust me on this one. I'm like, okay, Cammy. And Zarya came on and pretty quickly she said, you know what? You know where young people are on TikTok. I'm like, my God, TikTok. Fucking people dancing. They had, I don't understand it. And uh, it's like, look, let, let me make this video. They made a video. They showed it to me. I'm like, I, I don't even understand what this is. I, I have no idea what this is. In fact, it's not going to work. Because nobody's going to understand this. This is what I told them. But they said, well, will you let us? I said, sure. Carry on. I don't think it's going to work. Anyways, they posted a couple of videos and they went crazy viral. Like, yeah, I don't know how many. How many you know, I lost track. 20 million views some crazy viral video, And I still didn't understand why, why it was even funny. I just did not get it. And one of the things that I understood, which would be a major shift, you know, most of my time at Duolingo, and even before Duolingo, I spent designing products. When you design a product, it is important that every single one of your users understand what you're doing. It needs to be understandable. And I was applying that lens to our marketing. I thought, well, everything we put out has to be at least understandable by the world. This thing you put out makes no sense to me. How? In fact, most people won't understand it. And what I learned that with marketing, that's okay. Especially with things like social media that targeted to the people, you know, somehow TikTok targeted it to the people that understood it. Hmm. And that was fine. And so, you know, that, that worked out. And we started really leaning in on TikTok quite a bit and then we started getting worried that we were too reliant on tiktok at least for our marketing um uh, so we started uh figuring out how to how to get better at that um we started we we tried the same thing on youtube shorts and it works on youtube as well so by now our tiktok and our youtube provide about the same number of of new users to duolingo which is awesome the other thing is we started replicating the same formula in multiple countries. So now we have accounts, TikTok accounts and, and YouTube accounts on, you know, in Germany, in Japan, in uh, Brazil, in Spanish speaking world, in in you know, a bunch of different countries in Vietnam, and they've all succeeded uh, and they all use the same formula. And, and so we're, you know, it's, it's worked out really well, but, but the, the formula, you know, Uh, There's a number of things, but I think the biggest thing about the formula is if you look at our TikTok stuff and our our marketing stuff, it does, it's not selling to you. It's just funny crap. And like, there's no button that says download now or buy now or anything like that. It's just, we now have built a personality for the owl and, um, people love it. And I think that that really gets a lot of people, you know, it's basically free marketing. We don't, we don't pay for that. It's not true that we don't pay for any marketing. But that, that we don't think.
0: Was there a session in which you needed to come up with what the personality of,
1: of the it's owl evolved. was? It's just, it's iterative. It's, it, it's evolved. And, um, it really didn't mean, I would say the first glimmer of a personality came, this was a many years ago from the passive aggressive notification. This one was one I added and it was, it was as follows. And, but I didn't think it was going to be this, this big or anything. It was, um, it was because you know, we've always stopped sending notifications. if We stop using Duolingo. So we, you know, if you don't use Duolingo, we stop after like, it used to be about five days. We're like, okay, after five days, you know, whatever, you've given up, we're not going to spam you forever. And it occurred to me, you know what? If we're going to stop, we may as well tell people that we're stopping. Why not? So the last notification on the fifth day that we, that we started sending was, uh, these reminders don't seem to be working. We're going to stop sending them for now or something to that effect. And it turned out this, we didn't expect, it turned out that that really got people to come back because they, you know, it's this passive aggressive thing that they, you know, they they felt bad that Duolingo was giving up on them. And that is, that is the first glimmer of a personality that was just like, oh, this owl really wants me to be there and he's going to be passive aggressive. And that's, I think that's kind of what gave rise to a lot of the memes, but I mean, you know, we didn't. And, and so the personality of the owl has really evolved over time. And it's been kind of co-created by a lot of different Duolingo employees, but also by the community because they've made a lot of this stuff. And so there, there hasn't been, no, what we have had meetings about, especially for some of the videos, you know, with a lot of the videos, we, you know, we are learning brand after all. And so we don't want to do things that are lewd, but with a lot of the videos we are, um, we're unhinged. And so um, we do have uh, a system in place for not posting things that we're going to regret later. The system has failed a few times, um, but we do have a whole approval mechanism uh, for not posting really crazy crap.
0: What, what do you do when you... Uh when it feels it's crossed the line and, uh, and something just offended people in a way that you didn't expect? Do you just take it down and,
1: and move on? We usually take, I mean, we haven't, that hasn't happened too many times. Um, we do take it down, by the way, I don't know, good or bad. Usually the most offended are the bilingual employees. Um, so we, the, the times we've taken stuff down is more often than not, is because somebody in the company or a group of people in the company are like, how could you do that? Um, and so that's, uh, that's what has happened. But, uh, you know, but th- there was only one time that where there was a major, major backlash and kind of publicly, which was when we commented on, um, the, it, it, you know, I couldn't have told you that this was going to be that bad. And there was a, our account, our TikTok account left a comment on a video about the Johnny Depp, Amber Heard thing. And the comment said something to the effect of like, you guys think Amber Heard is on TikTok or something like that. I think that was the comment. And there was a huge backlash because somebody posted saying that Duolingo does not care about, um, uh, or like spousal violence or something yeah. like that. Yeah. And there was a huge backlash to the point where our, um, social media team had to, um, make their, their personal accounts private because they were getting death threats. Wow. Um, so (laughs) that's when we learned to stay away from, you know, there's certain things we just stay away from. Even, even if our comment, even if our comment is, you know, I don't think that comment was particularly incendiary, but, you know, there's some things we just stay away from.
0: We had one, one time we have a, uh, we'll joke on TikTok and Instagram reels and YouTube shorts. And we had one, one time that was um, it was when the market had corrected and uh, it was VCs six months ago versus VCs today. (laughs) And the joke was VCs six months ago were spend as much as you want. Like, are you, are you really burning as much cash as you can? We can give you more money, blah, blah, blah. Then VCs today were, are you sure we need a marketing team? Is that something? (laughs) And the joke was that the VCs were flippant in their advice, right? Right. Uh, People took it as we were making a joke about layoffs of a marketing department, Uh, right? And it was, the joke was about us and VCs, but I understood where they were coming from. So we got a big, that was a big outrage and you know uh it was something that we ended up i th- i think we apologized or something but you just never if you're going to take chances at these lines inevitably you're going to touch one and you're not sure i stand by that was just a good joke and we were making fun of ECs and not founders it's impossible
1: but- to tell it's impossible to tell what somebody's gonna you know uh, yeah, And have mentality takes it you know they, they kind of go against you uh, we haven't had a, that was the last time, this was maybe like a year and a half ago or whatever. We haven't had a big problem since then. Um, yeah. and, and I think it's important, by the way, if you're running a marketing team like ours, which I think is a major home run machine, um, to be okay with it. So, you know, what I did when that happened I and mean, they, they thought I was going to fire a few of them. And I actually walked to the desk of, in fact, the person that posted it and I said, it's completely okay.
0: To stand out is to risk being polarizing in some way. And so inevitably there's going to be some people that don't find it funny. And inevitably yeah. there'll be some percentage of people that are offended. And it's hard to say where it's going to come from. So no, that, that's that's great that you went over it and said that. That's yeah, the, the account the checks and balances are important in trying to get enough diverse eyes on the things so that you can understand where the totality of your audience maybe is gonna react to it. But it's the cost of doing business in some ways that inevitably you're going to get hit with some of these things.
1: And yeah, we're going to continue. I mean, and and by the way, we've had a a number of things that we've had to pull. I mean, the most recent one, we had a hilarious video that the marketing team just made. It was hilarious. Um, that we were going to post close to Halloween. We had gotten we had gotten uh, a famous person like in there. It, It was it was great, but it had kidnappings and the uh, well, Israel-Palestine conflict erupted right around that time. And so we didn't post it. We yeah. were so sad, but we couldn't. I mean, obviously, there was no way we should have posted that. But um, in other times, this would have been an amazing video.
0: What about being scrappy on the brand marketing side? I'd heard a story about, like, you guys uh, just hanging around, waiting for Billboard inventory to pop up. And, and being able to take advantage of it. Can you, can you tell that story as well as like other examples of just sort of being uh, scrappy about opportunities that present
1: themselves? You know, because historically our marketing budget has been pretty small. I mean, it's still pretty small. Our marketing budget now is about 50 million a year, which for a company with our revenues, is, it's about, it was about a fifth of what it should be. Um, you know, we don't, we are very scrappy. I mean, there's this story with, you know, with the billboards, we, and the billboard was going to be a funny billboard. It was, um, this was a billboard, not necessarily so much for marketing, Duolingo, but it was for getting employees. Um, so we just put a billboard in in the one-on-one in San Francisco that said something or other, like, uh, own a home, work in tech, move to Pittsburgh and it just said Duolingo or something like that. Um, yeah, I mean, (laughs) We only got that because we got a, a really good deal. We just hung around for a long time until we got a good, really good deal. Um, and but we used that. We used that same idea in a lot of ways. By the way, that is exactly what we do with our performance marketing. So we do performance marketing. We don't do very much. We do, you know, I don't know, on on the order of ten million bucks a year in performance marketing. A little more than that, but not much more than that. And that's what we do. Um, and the. What we do with performance marketing is we, we noticed we were in a really good position, which is we don't particularly care which country our users are coming from. Uh, we don't particularly care at what time we acquire them. We don't, we don't need to acquire them. You know, there's some, some companies that need to acquire them, you know, for a specific date or for something we just don't care. And so one of the things we do with our performance marketing is we just have a system that basically looks at the whole world. And so, if, for example, right now ads are too expensive in Italy, we just don't do anything Stay in Italy. We move all our budget to France, um, or, or or whatever. If it's too expensive in France, we move it to Vietnam or something. So it just we're always shifting budget a lot between countries because we are we're in this great position where we, you know, operate in every single, single country in the world, uh, or have users in every single country in the world, and we are agnostic as to where they come from, um, and so. That That's the type of stuff we do we we're, we're We're very um very scrappy in budget.:
0: I heard when you were starting Duolingo, uh you had no experience in teaching languages, and so you read a bunch of books and they all contradicted each other, or they they had mixed messages on how to learn how to teach i I don't know if that's true, but if so, like how did you go about figuring out what the core nucleus is of teaching language and how to start?
1: We didn't, I didn't know how to teach languages. I mean, I knew, I knew Spanish because that's my native language, but I had never taught Spanish. Um, Severin, my co-founder knew German because that was his native language and he never taught German. And so, yeah, we, we read a bunch of books. We, you know, there were some commonalities about what all the books said, how to best teach a language. And we kind of took those. Unfortunately, the books didn't agree with each other. They all had their own method and they're all, you know, um, so we took the commonalities and then we did what we thought made a lot of sense. By the way, we made a bunch of dumb mistakes that only computer scientists would make. So for example, this was a, this was done. Um, and we thought, Hey, you know, this, this, this kind of approach to deconstruct everything. Language is just words. So all we need to do is teach you words and how to use them. And if you know all the words and how to use them, you learn the language done. And so we're lucky though. so that's what we're going to do. And so, the the first, we are one of the first versions of Duolingo had just, we just were teaching you a list of words ordered by frequency. So, you know what? The first word, the most frequent word is the, teach you the first. Then, the second most common word, whatever the hell that is, teach you that word, et cetera. Turns out that's a very bad way of teaching. Um, And, uh, you know, it's also not true that because you've learned enough words to cover the first, like 30 words or whatever, cover something like 20% of the language. It's not true, you know, 20% of the language by knowing the first 30 words. That is just absolutely not true. Um, But that's kind of how we thought about it. So this is the type of stuff that we were doing. Um, Over time, we learned that that we could run A-B tests to figure out how to teach better. And so that, we started getting better at that. So we started kind of figuring some stuff out ourselves. Um, And then, but then we got significantly more pro um, when we hired our first person with a PhD in second language acquisition, um, I, that was a, we should have done that earlier. Um, uh, yeah, we got a lot more pro, uh, and, and that, that has really helped. And now what's interesting is when we got these people with, with, PhDs from second language acquisition, it's not like they know how to teach with an app. They didn't because they know how to teach in a classroom setting. Um, but we knew how to teach with an app. Now, we had our own wonky ways of teaching with an app, and they had their own very professional ways of teaching through classroom settings. Um, what has been really amazing is kind of, you know, they've learned how to take everything they know, and some of it applies to, to an app, some of it doesn't. They've learned how to make that kind of closer to the app, and we with the app and with the A-B testing and everything have learned how to go more closer to them. And so at this point, you know, I can... I can say that compared to 10 years ago, Duolingo teaches I don't know, way better. Um, but we've understood that actually there's just all these skills that you need to learn and that they don't carry to each other. Like, for example, you can be amazing at reading a language and have no idea how to speak. it. And, and, and we just didn't understand that at first. Um, so now, you know, we try to teach you all the different skills that, that are required to, teach, to, to learn a language. And, you know, we, we understand that the way to teach better is at first, you really need to teach things about how to, you know, uh, how to talk about concretely about things and greetings and stuff like that. These are not the most popular word or the most kind of high frequency words at all. Uh, but they are very useful to get started. And so that's, um, you know, we've learned that.
0: In the in the early days when it was just you and Severin, uh, you know, I, I think we, we talked about this a little bit before we started recording, but neither of you actually... Uh, retained as users of, of the app necessarily, and yeah. trying to learn new languages. Was there a was there a single product unlock or an aha that you realized about how to retain users or teach people through it, or was it just a continuous process of these little tests to get incre- incrementally better every day?
1: So, what happened with this is before we launched Duolingo. Um, you know, I made the first version of the Spanish course. And Severin made the first version of the German course, and we were going to learn each other's language. I didn't know any German, and he didn't know any Spanish, and we were going to learn each other's language. And we ran into this problem that neither of us wanted to do it. I mean, we would come into the office, and we would say, hey, did you do your Spanish lesson? And you'd be like, no, man. So, so boring. And I, I thought the same thing. It was so boring to learn um, uh, German. Um, and that's when, that's when we realized that the hardest thing about learning a language by yourself is staying motivated. And so that's when we started, like, adding, um, you know, adding all kinds of game mechanics and, like, progress bar at the top. Uh, At the end of a lesson, we give you points. The lessons should be short. There's all this stuff, and this is before we launched. So we weren't A-B testing anything, but we added a bunch of stuff so that at least we could swallow taking a lesson. I mean, it's like, okay, well, at least it doesn't feel like a complete chore. feels, yeah, kind of fun. And that's, you know, we launched with that. Um, and so by the time we launched, it was kind of fun. It wasn't as fun as it is today, but it was kind of fun. We had done no A-B testing. It was just, at least with us, we had made it, you know, kind of engaging. And, but but the the learning remained, which was just um, making us as engaging as possible. And so that, that continued.
0: What did you think this could be? when you were starting the company, you had been independently successful selling Recaptcha to Google. And so you were able to be a little bit more mission driven in your pursuits. Uh, I think, which I, I, yep. my understanding was that was an important consideration in the early days. Did you think that this would be a commercial potential public company or was it, Hey, this is just a good service and maybe it's a good business along the way. I never thought this would
1: be a public company. Um, I thought you know, I thought we could do something that would help teach people, mainly English. Um, I thought that that, that was going to be there. I mean, I didn't know how big it was going to get. Um, when we were launching, um, Rosetta Stone was like huge. We thought at the time it was huge. Um, it's not even clear that we thought we were going to get bigger than them. We just thought, well, we're free and we're at least going to let people, you know, learn that can't afford to pay. And I mean, was super expensive. It was like 500 bucks or something like, okay, well uh, we're going to let people learn that. Uh, and, you know, when they don't have to pay us 500 bucks before we launched, I thought if we ever get to about a hundred thousand monthly active users, um, that'll be success. That's what I thought. And I um, mean, yeah, that's funny. I mean, we get, we get way more than that new users per day now.
0: There, there's a great YouTube video. I think it's around the launch of uh, of Duolingo, uh, whatever, uh, fourteen years ago or twelve years ago or whatever it is. But I believe it's on that video you make reference to this this concept of the cap on human coordination uh, that it historically had been around a hundred thousand people. I think that was true of the pyramids, Panama Damn. Canal, getting a man on the moon. That like that's been the the when 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 physical objects were involved. That was the most we could scale to as, as humanity. Um, can, can you talk a little bit about that and how you how you thought that as an influence
1: of starting Duolingo? So we always wanted Duolingo to be free. And it was one potential way to monetize it. We ended up not monetizing this way, but there was one potential way of monetizing it, which, which was, um, look, maybe we can get a lot of people learning a language on Duolingo. And at the same time, While they're learning, they're helping us translate stuff. Because at the time, computers were just not as good. Today, they're essentially perfect. But at the time, they weren't uh, as good as they are today at translating stuff. So we thought we could, uh, rather than charging people uh, to learn a language or using ads, we thought we could use their work um, to help like translate stuff on the web. And then we could make money from that. So for example, the idea was going to be something like, well, if you write a news piece in English, like if you're CNN and you write a news piece in English, you can send it to us and our users, while they're learning English, they could help translate it into Spanish because they're native Spanish speakers and that's part of their learning. And then once it gets translated by our users, we send it back to CNN and then we charge them for the translation or something like that. We thought that was a was potentially a good business model because it, you know, it, it, no, no money was involved, uh, at least for the users. Turns out this is a very bad business model. So, we ended up not doing that. But that was, that was one of the original ideas with Duolingo to try to make money while keeping it free. It turns out a much better way to make money while keeping it free is to use a freemium model, which is you can learn as much as you want, but you may have to see some ads. If you don't want to see ads, you can pay us. It turns out that works really well. That was not clear back then this would, that this would work so well.
0: Yeah. So, what year was it when? Uh, so, so, Layla Sturdy from CapG invested and, and told you, hey, you got to figure out how to make some money here uh, at some point, right? What year was that?
1: She invested in 2015, I believe. We, at that point, Duolingo, she invested a valuation of about half a billion dollars.
0: With, um, with, with roughly how many users? Zero revenue, plus or minus. Zero right?
1: revenue. We must have had. Yeah, I don't remember anymore. Call it. I'm going to make up a number. Call it single digit, maybe one, two million daily active users.
0: One, two million daily, daily
1: actives. And, and if you looked at monthly actives, it was probably, uh, call it, uh, I don't know, six, seven million monthly actives, something like yeah. that.
0: So, so a rich valuation, uh, if certainly for, uh, uh, those times, uh, maybe, maybe yeah, we were the good news
1: is we were growing a lot. So yeah. we had just, you know, we, the previous year we had like 10 X. So it looks like we we're growing a lot, which was good. And, but, you know, she said to me, look, um, great product, great team, um, yummy money. And, uh, yeah, she, she took me out to drinks after after my third drink. She said, look, you're not going to find, uh, she's used exactly this word. You're not going to find a bigger fool than Google. Like that. This is it. Like, you, you know, we invested, we like you. This is great. We believe in you, but you're not going to find a, you know you're not gonna go get a valuation hype from anybody else. you're not gonna do that unless you make some money, so get it going and then um I gotta start some other yeah
0: well, and so yeah. now at this point, you have a very mission driven company right that are very yeah. uh aligned with your democratizing access to to learning languages and all that, and so you come back to them and say hey, you're a little hungover after a couple drinks with Layla, you start noodling yeah. it, and you say, hey, we, we've we got to figure this out. I assume not all of the company was uh, was excited to start showing ads or charging subscriptions. Is that a fair, fair assumption?
1: Yeah, no, they really were not. They were, in fact, um, entirely against it. Um, most everybody that joined Duolingo joined because of the mission to really deliver education to everyone. Um, and so... You know, I said to everyone, you yeah, we gotta we gotta you know somehow pay for this whole operation. And what everybody you know, first question everybody said is why? They're, well, <laughs> you gotta pay for your salary. And I was, you've been paying our salaries this whole time. What's the what's the problem? You know, that's when I kinda told them kind of what Layla had said. You, you you can't raise venture capital forever. Um and uh, uh it, you know, people finally were like, Okay, okay, fine. And it took this took like months where people were like, fine, you got to make money. How are we going to
0: make money? By the way, when you have that, I mean, a lot of our companies have dealt with different versions of this, in particular now trying to get people back into office or wh- whatever it is, right? Different social issues or uh, the mission-driven nature of a, of a company and trying to corral it in some way, shape, or form. I think as we're recording this, uh, there's this there's this large uh, business called OpenAI that's maybe going through some some elements right. of, of this, like, how did you actually go about building consensus around uh, getting people on board with this? It sounds like you didn't do it by edict and say,
1: hey, listen, this is no, the way. No, no, it had to be consensus. It, 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 no, it was generally a consensus driven company. It had to, I mean, the, the way that works, we were, I don't know how many employees we were at that time. Call it 150, maybe, give or take. Um, you know, there was clearly a spectrum of how much people cared and also a spectrum of how influential they were. And, um, you know, I spent time with each with each individual who either cared a lot or was very influential, like one-on-one. And some of them were easy to convince. There were a few stragglers who were just like, really resisted the idea. Um, and, but, you know, it took it took a period of, I don't know how long it was, a couple of months of, you know, people being, you know... Uh, upset at at this and then when they started seeing the mocks of how they became even more upset when they started the first time somebody saw a build of duolingo with ads in it people were like what is this that's awful and it's because yeah it's true i mean the ads the truth is the duolingo product experience is quite polished and then you put an ad which is looks like sorry but most of these ads that you play on apps look like crap yeah um so yeah it, it took, it, it took quite a bit to, to figure that out, to, to, sorry, for people to get used to it. Um, but you know, the explanation that really resonated most with everybody is if we make money, we can use it to really speed up our own mission. And it was a hundred percent true. As soon as we started making money, we started growing the employees a lot. Instead of having like four separate product pipelines. Now we have, I don't know how many product pipelines we have. We have like 50 separate you know, kind of lanes where people are are just improving the product. Um, And that's all because we, you know, we make revenue now.
0: How did you think about the line between subscription, which my understanding is that drives is a very small percentage of the users, but a high percentage of revenue and then advertising, which is the opposite. When you were thinking about this philosophically, how did you come up with where the lines of demarcation were?
1: We didn't have too much philosophical. It was a lot of A-B testing. The only thing that we decided to do is we're going to put an ad on the free product that we're going to do. At the end of a lesson, we will put one ad that, you know, it, it, after five seconds is skippable. We're going to do that. And we decided we were going to do. And then we added an edict that said, we're not going to degrade the free user experience further than that. That is it. We're going to degrade it by putting one ad at the end of a lesson. Don't degrade it more. Um, we didn't know whether ads or subscription was going to give us, you know, that much more money in retrospect. I think, I think subscription businesses are a lot more well understood now than they were at least digital subscriptions like that for apps. than they were a while ago in retrospect, this would have been obvious, but at the time it was not clear to us that ads or subscriptions, you know, which one was going to be the killer one, but after running it for about a you know, a few months, it became clear that subscription was so much of a better business. Um, and so yes, uh, today, a give or take, you know, 8% of our um, monthly active users are paid subscribers and 92% use it for free yet for a revenue, give or take 80% comes from uh, the subscription.
0: And you guys philosophically will not charge people for content, right? Like that's, uh, you don't want to become Rosetta Stone and gatekeep content too
1: much? Correct. We don't charge people for content. The only things that are okay for us to charge for are things that we have to pay for. So, for example, um, we now have a tier on Duolingo, which is Duolingo Max, which has some features that have um, large language model usage. We have to pay for that because we don't have our own large language model. So we have to pay for that. And because we have a variable cost on it, we do put it behind, um, um, you know, you have to pay for it um, because otherwise that would be a, a major money loser for us.
0: There's a rule I've heard you guys have that if, uh, if five people or less can build something as well, you won't charge for it. Is that, is that still true? And how it philosophically
1: is. do you think about that? This is you know, it's one of those internally called the five Germans and a dog. It's, it's five Germans and a dog can build it. Uh why are why 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 can we charge it? Because you know the reason we decided not to do it is because that you know, that's how you that's how honestly that's just how we beat Rosetta Stone. I mean we weren't German, but we just made a thing that was free. And it was not made by three hundred people. It was made by a very small number of people. And very quickly we took them over in terms of usage, not in terms of revenue because we're making any revenue, but in terms of usage, we took them over very quickly. Um, and so yeah, we're going to get disrupted. If we build something and start charging for it, that can be built, you know, so easily some company that has a small amount of funding. I mean, for, you know, five people, you need 5 million bucks of funding or less than that. They can build it and eat your business. So that that's been the rule um we're a little less worried about that these days just you know that was more of a worry a few years ago when when our dominance was not as big I mean I, at this point it's just we have a lot of moats, and it's, it's it's become pretty hard to compete with us so we're a little less worried about that but that was a worry that was a pretty major worry I'd say you know hmm. six years ago
0: so now you're actually branching outside of languages uh how do you think about doing that. And then what's the hardest part? Is it is it getting the brand? Is it the content? Is it rebuilding elements of the product? What's the hardest part of doing that?
1: Um, It's creating the whole learning experience. Um, You know, we're branching out to math and music. Um, There's some differences in how you teach math and music to languages. And so we're creating the learning experience. That's to me, that's the hardest part. What's the most interesting difference of how someone would learn a language
0: versus math
1: or music? Well, math needs more explanation. Than, than languages. Um, it's also the exercises. And there's a lot more graphical elements to it. It's just a lot of math. I mean, some of it is just numbers, but a lot of it, it just, especially if you're going to teach geometry and stuff like that, it's, it's a lot more graphical stuff. And, and, and you have to start really, you know, you have there's a lot of things you have to kind of figure out that we've now just figured out with languages. I mean, we figure out, for example, with languages, I'll tell you, it took us many years to figure this out. And in retrospect, it's obvious obviously. Really, look, if you're going to teach a language, you, sh- you should align yourself with this thing called the Common European Framework of Reference. It's called the CEFR. Just do that. Don't deviate. Um, there's no such thing for math. For math, there's something like, it's called like the common core, but it's not clear to us that, that the common core is as good as uh, CEFR. Hmm. And so that's the type of stuff that we just don't know. Uh, and, and also for math, um, we're not entirely sure who our audience is. There's our audience we want but there's an audience that we may end up getting that is not what we want. What we want is everyone. We want to do for math what we did for languages, which is, you know, 80% of our users were not learning a language before Duolingo. We want it to be the case that anybody who's 25 years old or 30 years old or however, or they're eight years old, they just use Duolingo to learn math and they get better at it. We want that to be true. It may end up being that the only people we get are the people who are forced to learn math because we just can't make math fun enough. Uh, but what we would like is is to get to everyone. And with math, this is a real open question. Can we get it so that your average 35-year-old decides to spend 5 to 10 minutes a day getting better at math? Can we do that? I don't know. Uh, that is what the product team is tasked with. And, and we have a really good product team, but I don't know if they'll succeed. So.
0: Because it's interesting, and, and you alluded to this, of getting to spend 5 to 10 uh, minutes a day. but. Uh, you don't view your competition as Rosetta Stone or a private language tutor or, or uh, whoever. It's like, how do, how do you think about your competition and, and what you're going up against for that individual?
1: Our competition is time. Um, and, and, you know, if you want to be more precise, it's time on the phone. So a real, you know, when we talk to our users and we ask them, you know, the ones who like stop using Duolingo, like, Where would you stop? I don't know we've done. I'm sure they exist, but I don't know, I don't know we've done any user research where they've told us they've gone to a competitor, like a, like a language learning competitor. That's not what people say. You know, the, the most common thing that people say, well, the first thing they say is I haven't stopped, which they're just lying about. But once, they, once you convince them that, yes, you know that they have stopped, they'll tell you, well, to be honest, I'm just spending more time on TikTok or Instagram or whatever the hell it is. So our real competition is is, you know, the apps, games, uh, whatever it is, the the things that take up your time uh, on your phone.
0: Is there an optimistic point about humans and their desire to learn embedded in that, that they're willing to waste time on TikTok or Instagram, which presumably I think most of that is, uh, or spend it learning a language if the language experience is... Comparable or enjoyable or easy? Like, how do you how do you think about the? I mean, I believe that obviously
1: we haven't gotten there. I mean, obviously TikTok has more users than Duolingo, but I do believe that um, as long as you're close to as fun as TikTok or as engaging or however you want to call it, addictive, engaging, however you want to call it, as long as you're close, I think we have a good good shot because afterwards, the good news about Duolingo is afterwards you don't feel like you wasted your time. You at the very least that's somewhat better at Spanish. Um, whereas if you spend 30 minutes, you know, scrolling on Instagram, no, you may learn a couple of things, but really mostly time wastage. Um, and so I, we think that as long as we're as close, uh, as long as we're close to how engaging that is, we're in a good spot. And, and again, I think we've gotten somewhat close, but we're not there. <laughs> Uh you know, we have, I don't know, the latest numbers, we released something like 24 million daily active users, we don't have 500 million daily active users. So we got to get there.
0: Yeah, there's room to grow. Uh, in terms of artificial intelligence, you all have been fairly early in terms of using this, Can can you talk about your original desire to maybe build some of this stuff? internally and then uh, where you all are in the evolution of, of using tooling and what that's going to mean from a user experience standpoint?
1: Yeah, for artificial intelligence, um, you know, we've always from the beginning for Duolingo, the idea was we're not going to use humans to teach you. Uh, there's a reason for that, uh, because humans are expensive. Um, you know, if we want to teach literally whatever, hundreds of millions of people, you got to find a lot of teachers and they're expensive and you got to pay for them. And we're just not going to use them. Basically, we're going to teach you with, with a computer. Um, so that has always been the idea. And if you're going to do it with a computer, you know, you got to make it so the computer can teach as well as a one-on-one human tutor. And so we've been working really hard to use AI to teach as well as a one-on-one human tutor. Um, there was a major shift, of course, in the last year, call it. Because of large language models. I, and I don't think almost anybody else could have told you five years ago that large language models were going to be this good. Um, Turns out they're extremely good. So, you know, immediately when they came out, um, we started, you know, applying some of our AI efforts into that. That's not the only place where we've used AI. We use AI for a lot of different things. Um, Mm -hmm. But at least for conversational practice, this is the thing we were never able to do. Uh, without large language models, we just could not build a very good conversational partner. But today uh, we can build in a really good conversational partner with a large language model
0: How has uh going public made you all operate differently? Is it been a good experience? What would you recommend for for people maybe thinking about it for
1: for us, I think it's been an excellent experience um for me has been a really good experience. I think there's a couple of things I think we you know I heard this from um, Rich Barton, uh, who started Zillow and a number of other, you know, amazing companies. He said, look, going public is like joining, uh, the major leagues. Like everything just operates at a higher level. And I believe that, I mean, just everything started operating on a higher level. You just are forced to do all these things that you didn't have to do before. So you don't do them. It's like, you know, when you get no visitors in your house, you're not really forced to clean, but if you're going to have visitors every day, you're keep a pretty clean house. Um, it's the same thing. Like everything just we operate a lot better. I think for me in particular, I've been very lucky that we have a really good CFO and finance team. So I haven't had, my job hasn't changed all that much because a lot of the public company stuff gets done by our finance team. And I'm, I'm, and other than just regular doing regular earnings calls, um, um, it hasn't changed all that much for me in particular, but I think I've had a Fortunate experience for a number of reasons, but I think the probably the biggest reasons reason why we've had a fortunate experience is that um, we got very good at forecasting, and we don't overpromise. And I think we've historically haven't we we haven't just been one of these companies that completely overpromises. And so I think that that has helped.
0: Why do you think there there haven't been more successful consumer Companies, I, as we look today, you all are at your all-time high, despite having gone public. You know, everyone else that sort of has gone public in the 2021 vintage or whatever uh, are definitely below their all-time high. Um, I would say there there aren't that many businesses that have been created between five and twenty billion dollars, twenty-five billion dollars in equity value, and within consumer. Do you think? there's there's some innate cap that you either get super big, like a Facebook or a a Google or or a Snapchat, or it's it feels like there's there's just not a lot that exists at that level versus enterprise software. There's a ton. Do you have a perspective on that?
1: I mean, we asked ourselves this question um, that there does seem to be something to once you get kind of big enough, you just immediately turn into like a Facebook. there's there's, does seem to be a little bit of that. Uh, I think another thing that has happened certainly for a lot of kind of the smaller consumer things is I, I think, I think a lot of them were fooled by performance marketing. I, I think, um, we were very fortunate, not because we were so smart. It's not that we were so smart. It's just, we just, because we were not monetizing, we didn't do performance marketing, Hmm. but performance marketing is such a drug. It's such an addiction. And, and once you're in it, you can't stop it. And the problem with it is that really cuts into your margins to the point where you just, it's, very hard to, it's very hard to ever become you know, very profitable when you're, when you're relying on a lot of these consumer apps that are not the Instagrams of the world. If you look at where their users are coming from, it's overwhelmingly performance marketing. When you look at like 80% of their users are acquired or something like that, you're going to have a shitty margin. That, that's that. And so, and then, then yeah, investors are, driving think you're a shitty business too, because you have a shitty margin. Mm-hmm. Fortunately for us, we never did rely on performance marketing. And so our margins are really good because we don't do that. Um, and I think that's it. I think, I think in retrospect, I can understand that again, it's not because we were so smart back then, but in retrospect, I can understand, look, the truth of the matter with performance marketing is that companies like Facebook or like meta or, or Google, um, are excellent. At extracting all the value for that like you know if there is more value to extract if there's more margin to extract they'll take it uh because that's what they're good at and so i, I think that's another big reason i mm. think interesting so
0: duolingo today has approximately how many people uh linkedin says 1700 does that sound about right
1: no that's a lot of uh, um, I don't know why that is. There's some uh, contractors there, and Got who it. knows who knows what else randomness there is. Uh, we have about seven fifty employees. Seven fifty, okay. Uh, yeah.
0: I had heard you or Severin, your co-founder, have been or were in every hiring meeting. Is that still the case? Both of us. Both, Both of us. you
1: all 750 people you've met with Well, we've hired uh, more than that because we've also lost some people uh, yeah yes, i guess I everything every so what... and by the way not only that we've also turned down a lot of people so yes we've been in the hiring meetings of thousands of people
0: how do you how do you make that work time wise uh and, and how is that a principle um,
1: every week we just do it every week there's a meeting every week that lasts about half an hour where they present us um and, you know the hiring manager comes and presents the case for the person that they're uh, the country for some roles, you know, this goes super fast, particularly for more kind of junior roles. Sometimes these meetings take a long time and, and, you know, we may go through a lot of, um, back and forth, but it, you know, it works. It's not like, I mean, again, it's not like the majority of the people that apply for Duolingo get rejected much earlier than that. The only ones that get to us are the ones that where everything looks pretty good. And so they get to us so it's not that many per week it's um got it so it's yeah, not that you get
0: you don't meet every employee before they join but you sign we off we used on. to
1: not we used to meet every employee that was not that was, that was a while ago i mean and that probably stopped five years ago hmm. um at this point it's it's really just the case gets made to us yeah by the way this is very important um and it's because of this everybody else but us and it's not because we're special people. I'll just tell you what it is. Everybody else but us has a true incentive to fill the role. The, the person from the talent acquisition team just wants to fill the role because they're being paid to fill the role. The hiring manager has a hole in their organization, so they need to fill the role. So everybody just has an incentive. So what happens is they're just like, yeah, this, this person is good enough. And so they come in with an incentive to hire, whereas we have an incentive to hold the line. And by the way, yeah, again, it's not because we're such great individuals with such great It's just a matter of incentives because we do the same thing because I've seen when Severin wants to hire somebody, he also has this problem. And when I want to hire somebody for my team, I also lower the bar. And so we try to, you know, it's, it's simply, it's not because we are such great judges of talent or whatever. It's simply I mean, it's it's a matter of incentives, and that's why we we, we keep doing
0: it. So it's kind of human nature. If it's yours, then you see the pain of having to restart it, and so that's a, and that's exactly
1: right. I mean, when I'm hiring for my executive team, I'm just like, my God, I've been looking for six months. Look, this person's pretty good. They're pretty good. They're pretty good. And then if I show it to somebody who's way more impartial, they're like, really? Um, come on. And so that I think that's what it is. It's it's simply that. Beyond just being a good person,
0: what's a what's a non-negotiable for someone joining Duolingo? And maybe maybe to the good person example, if you could also tell the the car ride uh, of what what you all do. If people hear this, maybe they'll know now to be nice to. Well, nice we do to- a bunch
1: of things, and, and you know, um, we do that. F- you know, for us, it's important that people are kind, um, and. One of the places where that shows up a lot is how you treat people who are, uh, lower in the organizational structure than you are. Yeah. Everybody's pretty nice to me when they meet me, uh, and they want to work for Duolingo. But, um, you know, we definitely see how people, uh, treat, um, some, and, and this is usually for, for, um, more senior roles, um, where we look at, you know, how they treat much more junior people. And, you know, I mean, this is one of, you know, we've I've told this story before where, um, you know, we were looking for a CFO for a long time and um, one person had, everything looked good, everything looked good, but um, they did not treat their driver well. And the driver is a person that has worked with us. You know, not, it's not a dualing employee, but it's the same. You know, we have a few drivers that we work with, to send people to the airport, you know, to, to pick them up and, you know, we asked them, hey, was this person good? And like, actually no, they were pretty, pretty nasty to me. And we didn't hire them. And that was, it was painful for me not to hire them because I wanted to hire this person because I had been looking. This is an example. I had been looking for a long time. It was, at that time, I probably had been looking for like nine months. And this was a very smart person, uh, very competent, but I guess they were not nice to our client. And And my sense is if that happens you know, they're probably not going to be very nice to a level one, you know, finance associate or whatever.
0: Beyond that, beyond being kind to people, are there certain traits that you look for uh, that are non-negotiables? Or is every role kind of specific beyond
1: that? It it depends a lot on the role. No, it's not the role, but more the function. So, you know, in the case of um, uh, design, you know, we really look at, people's portfolio and we really care about polish you know some design organizations are okay that some of the designers don't have as much polish as others for us every designer that we hire we want to have polish so we look at their portfolio a lot it just kind of depends on the function hmm. uh but i would say company-wide you know we want people to be kind and obviously really good at their craft um that that's just you know kind of obviously hmm. so there's one other thing that we do look for it's 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 which which we try um we really want people who are, uh, in one way or another exceptional. And, and we, we look for that quite a bit. And exceptional can mean different things. I mean, in some cases, you know, exceptional is the usual kind of tech company definition of exceptional, which is like went to Stanford, got a 4.0, um, et cetera, et cetera. And that, that's pretty exceptional. Honestly, very few people were able to get a 4.0 from Stanford. So that's pretty exceptional, but we look for a broader definition of exceptional. I mean, First, first person in the family to go to college. It's pretty exceptional. Um, comes from a country, from a very poor country, actually grew up in a very poor, poor country and somehow managed to, you know, go to the university in France. That's pretty exceptional. Uh, so stuff like that, um, you know, we, we 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 try to make it so that everybody we hire has something exceptional.
0: What have you learned about I guess, both leading and managing over the course of running Duolingo?
1: Managing, definitely, I've learned how to not become, how to not be a micromanager. (laughs) I I actually believe that if you're a small company, you know, under 20 employees, it really is actually a good thing for you to be a micromanager. Like, why not? Um, After a certain number, you just can't be. and, And then after you start hiring very senior people, you just piss them off. Um, So I've learned not to be a micromanager. Um, You know, there's a number of other things I've learned that ultimately when there's a fuck up, not to point fingers to anybody but yourself. And we actually have made that pretty good part of the culture of doing it, especially in some functions where, you know, there's fuck ups happening every day. Um, And we've gotten pretty good at, you know, it's just like, okay, well, keep going. And as a leader, I think it's really important to be very very ready to blame yourself um, I think a lot of leaders I've seen it with you know even with people who are in over the years report to me where they really trying not to get blamed for something like no no somebody else did it yeah. uh, I think people respect it a lot more when you say look ultimately I'm responsible for it and you know by that I'm responsible for all the Duolingo fuckups and we've had hundreds, maybe thousands.
0: It's probably safe to describe yourself as a uh, accidental entrepreneur. Is
1: that is that yeah. fair? I did not grow up thinking I would be an entrepreneur.
0: And and, and then you, Captcha, then then Recaptcha, then Duolingo. I guess um, when Recaptcha sold, how many people did you have?
1: Oh, not a lot. Um, a dozen.
0: Got it. What what? What part of the entrepreneurial journey, uh, do you innately enjoy
1: the most? I don't know if it's the entrepreneurial journey that I enjoy. It's more, more I enjoy doing things that have impact that part I enjoy. So I enjoy, I'm enjoying a lot what I'm, I'm doing right now with Duolingo, but it's because I'm still allowed to touch the product. Um, the day I'm no longer allowed to touch the product. I, my job satisfaction will go down quite significantly. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I like that. I mean, I like tinkering. And I like being able to have a lot of um, say in what in 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 what goes into the end product of a, of a consumer product.
0: I've heard you say that working out has been a life changing thing for yes, you. Yeah. W- when yeah. did that start, uh, and and h- how how has it actually changed your life?
1: I mean, it started. I started about right around when I started Duolingo. Um, I just think it was a streak. I decided to have a workout streak and, um, I haven't, I haven't lost it. Actually. It's been, you know, however many years, 13, give or take years, every, uh, every day or every, every day, every day, every day, I've not lost it. I did cheat a couple of times as follows at these trends, these, these flights to, to Japan, there's a problem with the date there cheat <laughs> yeah, so yeah, yeah. by working out twice the day before. And uh you know, something like that. But but yeah, I haven't lost my streak of working out every single day. Um What's the most bare bone thing you've done to uh t- to make it work? Uh, uh yeah, the, the New York Times seven minute workout. Yeah, got um, it. You, look, because some because you can always say you can go running, but sometimes it's like horrible weather. You're in some random hotel that has no gym or whatever, and all you got is you. And yeah, you do that seven minute workout a few times and that's all you do.
0: How has it changed you? Is is it, is it the energy from it? Is it the, the the energy,
1: you know, I used to get sick quite often, which is funny, which I, now I am sick, but I, I get sick once every like two years. Um, I used to get sick very often before that. That's one thing. I think the other thing is it really uh, allows me to regulate my own emotions quite a bit. But I think I, you know, I'm generally a pretty emotional guy but i think that um my wife says i'm, I'm latin american latin american men <laughs> but i think uh um uh, you know it allows me to regulate my emotions i think someone that uh, maybe
0: struggles with that or, or wants to get going is there is there any advice you would have to them on like how to just start making progress is it just get a streak going uh,
1: in a similar way to Duolingo. Yeah, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. And by the way, what, that's what matters the most. Just get a streak going with anything. I mean, this is, this, by the way, it's the same with Duolingo. Look, a lot of times people are like, no, 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 no there's, a, there's a better method for learning a language. And it's like, look, ultimately, that's like saying the treadmill is better than the elliptical. It probably is. But you know what matters 95% is that you do something. That's, you know, did you do it with a treadmill, with an elliptical or one of those weird climbing machines or whatever? Sure. Probably there are some differences. But between not having done anything and having done even the dumbest one of these, it's better to do the dumbest one of these. I mean, and that's the thing with Duolingo. We're optimized for keeping you going.
0: Is there, is there another habit or anything you've picked up on maximizing productivity and balancing your, your, you know, work-life balance and all of that stuff?
1: I mean, I'm pretty efficient at most everything I do. And I think that's, you know, a lot of people comment on that. I'm, I do most everything very fast. I eat very fast. So I, I don't know if it's a habit that I think, I for some reason, I'm just very fast at most everything I do. I'm the same way eating,
0: by the way. I, uh, it's always yeah. been a problem. People You're think not, that I've been to jail. Fast. Yeah.
1: People think that I've been to jail because I like eat so fast. <laughs> I eat yeah. so fast. But the truth is, I, I, you know, I love food, but I, I don't savor it in my mouth for five hours.
0: Yeah, that's funny. Um, one of the, uh, one of the things I'd be curious about is, um, recapture was sold in, what was it? 2008, nine, 10, nine, nine. Okay. Uh, and at that point in time, I, I don't think it's ever been disclosed, but you didn't raise any outside money and sold for, I, have for you said tens of millions of dollars. Uh, yeah. and so, um, and now Duolingo is an enormous success. I'm sure we can look up in the S1 how uh, you know your ownership at time of IPO. But per- safe to say, uh, you you uh, you've made more money than you can probably spend between both of, of these things, unless you want to go buy a sports team or something. Uh, but. I assume, I don't know if that's in the cards for you, but...
1: Dep- what... Depending on the sports team. Depending <laughs> okay. on the sports team. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, in that case, then then there's a lot of stuff. There's a lot more that you can keep going uh, to, to yeah. buy the sports team. What would be the sports team of choice if you could?
1: I mean, I don't know. I'm, I like soccer. Uh, yeah, but okay. I'm, okay. Not, I'm not that crazy. I mean, I'm, I like soccer, but I'm not...
0: You're, yeah, it's not going to be the
1: Steelers or the yeah
0: one of the Pittsburgh teams. Okay.
1: Um, well, the Pirates would be cheap, but...
0: <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. How um, how has that most changed your life, or or how you view the 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 world? Uh, having that level of of success, it seems like you you still live in Pittsburgh, presumably a similar ish life. But is there any way that it's changed to the positive versus the negative
1: on stuff? Well, yeah, I mean, you don't worry about some of the stuff that you used to wear. I mean, I remember when I was a graduate student, you worry about like, are you going to have enough? money to pay the rent and stuff like that. Um, you know, those, those worries entirely go away. And that, I think, you know, that's, that's quite a nice thing. I mean, I just don't, and, and not only that, the other thing is just not having to spend any mental energy on like, um, you know, Judith, does this toothpaste cost more or less than that other toothpaste, et cetera. Just, just, I, I, you know, I basically learned just don't think about money unless again, unless you're going to go doing some crazy thing, like buy a sports team, it kind of just doesn't matter. Hmm. Uh, and, you know, at least I don't spend the uh, uh, mental energy on that. Now for me, I'm, uh, you know, it's not like I go around spending crazy amounts of money. Um, so it hasn't changed that much how I live my life. I mean, I have, I have like three pairs of jeans. That's it. It's kind of what I have. <laughs> um, yeah, it hasn't changed that much. I mean, I, I did, you know, I, uh, right now, I'm in, I'm in New York I'm in New York and, and you know, I did, buy a expensive house here. But other than that, I haven't done all that much. I've
0: heard you say uh, something about like to truly understand something is to be able to explain it simply or or some philosophy like that. Can can you espouse uh, or expound on that a little bit uh, for for why you. And that's
1: from my Ph.D. advisor, Manuel Blum. I mean, it it is an amazing thing. And it's hard to explain unless you have actually felt it. Once you actually understand something, you can give an amazing, clear, simple explanation of it. Um, And I used to think that that I just didn't know that. Um, And, you know, I learned that um, from my advisor. And it was as follows. It was early on in my PhD. You know, I had to explain a scientific paper to him. And he said, go read this paper. Explain it to me because I haven't read it. I would come. You know, I came in for a one hour meeting and I said like the first statement. And he said, I don't understand. And I'm like, how can you understand? It's just a simple, the simplest statement like I just I just don't get it. Why did you say that? Why did you start with that? Why I don't get it? And I spent the whole hour and I couldn't even go after for, past the first line of the paper. Um, I came back the next week and it was the same thing. It took me six months to finally get to a point where he said, Okay, I understand meeting him weekly. It turned out he was he was pretending the whole time. He, actually, that paper he was a real expert in. Um, but it took me really six months. And, and it, it, it is true. I mean, the explanation that I had at the end of the six months was just because I really understood it. It was just crystal clear. And I could explain something that at first I was planning on it, taking like 40 minutes to explain it to him. I ex- was able to explain the idea in like a minute. There's like, no, this is the main idea of the paper, blah. and um. Yeah, but that only happens once you really understand something. And that's, I mean, that's the genius of my PhD advisor. hes He, he really understands things well.
0: I think today there's more people learning languages in the US through Duolingo than the education system combined. Do I have that fact right?
1: Correct. There are more people learning languages on Duolingo in the US than there are people learning languages across all US high schools combined.
0: But um, i I heard you say recently that you're not anti-the U.S. education system, mm. uh, and in fact, maybe may pro of it. If Having learned so much about how people learn and, and built a business around it, at least for uh, languages and now increasingly music and math, if you could wage, wave a magic wand, is there anything from a teaching standpoint or, or how we go about the, the educational system in the U.S. that you would change if there was one thing that stuck out?
1: It's very different from what we do at Duolingo. But I mean, what matters the most in the educational system are the teachers. Um, this is by far what matters the most. And um, there are some excellent teachers. But there's also quite a, h- a high variance. And you know what I would waive the most is or what I would waive or want to is make sure that every teacher that is out there is amazing. Mm. Um, that's pretty hard to do, uh, given a system that doesn't pay teachers very well, given a system where, um, you know, there's essentially the equivalent of tenure in some of these places where, you know, you basically can work and not do all that much because of teacher unions. So there's a lot of stuff that is working against that, but the thing, you know, you want better education, better teachers. That's, you know, again, very different from Duolingo. Uh, Duolingo, we don't use humans, but the truth of the matter is that for the foreseeable future. Uh, humans are going to be needed for, you know, the educational system.
0: Can you tell the story of Bill Gates? So Bill Gates called you once to try to personally recruit you to uh, to join Microsoft. What, can you give that backstory? I picked it up in something I was researching and I was like, well, I have to get that story uh, or a little bit more detail into it. Clearly it didn't work. You never went to go work at Microsoft, right?
1: <laughs> yeah. And so when I graduated from my PhD, I, um, I don't know, there's this one other thing that happens when you... Um, Kind of the, the winner takes all kind of thing. Um, I I was the kind of most sought after candidate after I graduated from my PhD. Every university wanted me to become a professor there. And um, usually, when you graduate from a PhD in computer science, you go become a professor in computer science at our university. But there's another path, which is you could also join Microsoft Research. And I was the most sought after candidate. You know, every university, every computer science department wanted to hire me. Microsoft Research wanted to hire me too. And Microsoft Research, I guess, at the time, I don't know, they had a thing where the person they wanted to hire the most that year, um, they would get Bill Gates to call you and personally pitch you for as long as you wanted to. So I, you know, I ended up talking to him for like an hour, um, mainly not because I had, you know, I, I, I love a lot of the stuff that they've done at Microsoft and certainly Microsoft Research, but I, I, I wanted to become a professor, so I had no no desire but i wanted to talk to bill gates for an hour so i was happy to do that
0: <laughs> yeah well it's good I, if yeah. he listen if bill gates ever calls me i i will gladly take his call and i'll spend an he's hour such talking a smart to guy. him
1: he's yeah. such a smart guy it's crazy when you enter a room and you're like he's clearly smarter than me yeah you think that with him like every do, time do you- because i've been in a room multiple times with him for different things different every time you're like yeah that guy's smarter than me do you, do you remember
0: what you talked to him about or what questions you asked him at
1: that time? No, I don't too much. Um, but I've talked to him about a number of things. I mean, he's, you know, he's a, he, we've talked about tooling one stuff, uh, a number of times again, he's such a smart guy.
0: Yeah. Now, uh, last one, I'll let you hop. What's the, what's the story of you setting up a honeypot website to catch people that were cheating on your, uh, on your tests <laughs> when you were a professor? I was a
1: professor. Yes. I was a professor of computer science. Um, and, um, Uh, It wasn't tests. I, you know, we were, I was assigning, um, you know, math problems. It was basically discrete math, but it was um, was math problems. And we had this rule, which was a dumb rule, but it was a rule uh, that I inherited from the guy who taught the class before me. That was, you can't use, you can't Google for solutions. Um, And so we tried every time that we never, because there's only so many really awesome math problems. And, you know, we tried to disguise them a little bit. But you know, we thought, well, probably people are Googling for solutions. And then it occurred to me, well, I'll teach them not to do that. And so I made up a problem. I specifically made up a problem. And then I made a website for that problem. There's that, it, it, it a fully unique problem in a website that had the problem, et cetera. And I owned the website. And what happened is I assigned the problem. And I said, of course, you know, as usual, you can't Google or anything. But if you Googled that problem... You got to my website and I could track who you were uh, on the website. And so um, turned out 30% of the class, this was a class with 300 kids. So about 100 of them fell on the little website and um, I found them all. And then um, the next lecture, I, you know, I didn't say anything. I didn't contact them the next lecture. I just went in. I stood in front of the class. I projected my screen. I typed you know, the query to get to that problem. I got to the website and everybody's just like, okay. Eh. And then I said, I did a, you know, to, to know who owns a website, you just do who is and the name of the website. And I typed in in the prompt there, who is the name of that website. And then it said that it is owned by me. And then you see everybody's jaw just drop. And then I'm, then I, st- then I, then I, you know, I'm using, this is like using Linux. I'm, I'm showing them, you know, the, the server logs and just everybody's IP address. And I'm like, Ooh, and everybody was just, they were, um, they were peeing the pants. Um, and so.
0: What'd you do with it? Did you, did they confess or, or uh, what happened?
1: I mean, I knew who they were. Um, so I just gave them a zero, all of them in that assignment. I said, look, I'm not going to ruin your life. I'm just going to give you a zero in that assignment. You can still get an A in the class, but I was not interested in ruining anybody's life. I just wanted to, uh, have them not do that anymore.
0: Yeah. Well, that's a good lesson. Well, thank yeah. you for doing this. This is fun. I uh, yeah, hope hopefully thank you, you feel better powering through yeah, here. You. Uh yeah. So th- thanks for doing this. It's a pleasure and uh yeah, this is great.
1: Thank you, same. Pleasure's mine. Thank you.